go ahead and open up to the book of Galatians. The Lord has rightly petrified me tonight. Lest I say anything from my own sinful heart. So I just pray. And all you hear is from his spirit. terrifying thing to open the Word of God. So if you will have mercy on me. I see a lot of new faces tonight. We just want to welcome you. I promise we don't always cry every time. (laughs) If you're new here, my name is Christian. (laughs) We just want to welcome you. I have the pleasure and the honor of being on the teaching team here. And as you can tell from the very bright blue sign behind me, we are going through the book of Galatians. Last week, Jeff brought to us the introduction to the book of Galatians in verses one through five. And here at Salt, we like it to be our mainstay and to just take God's word bit by bit, first section and then the next section and then the next. So tonight, We pick up where he left off in verse six. And if you will read with me, I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, if it interests you. Galatians chapter one, verse six. I marvel you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Lord, let us be slaves for you. This is not a complex passage to understand. It's really very clear, very straightforward. And so I just want to draw out three main things for us to see from this text. Three main things. I'll give them to you here at the top for all you note takers. We have the deserters, we have the damned, and we have the doulos. And we'll get to what doulos means in its time. The deserters, the damned, and the doulos. These three things you might notice also correspond to the three parties involved in the letter. We have the audience in verse six. 
the adversaries in verses 7 through 9 and the author in verse 10. And so we'll run through these and I'll be sure to call them out as we go, but let's just begin in verse 6 with the deserters. I marvel, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Paul says that he marvels at the Galatian churches. I marvel, or I am astonished, or I am amazed. This is the same word that Christ uses when he marvels at the faith of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. But in this case, yes, it denotes amazement, but not at faith, rather at lack of faith, or lack of faithfulness. And more specifically, the speed of their abandonment of their first love, how quickly they've deserted Christ. I might relate this to the youth group flirt who is in love with one girl whom he met last week only until a new face saunters through the church doors for him to suddenly become infatuated with her instead. Or the toddler who loves her toy until she sees her friend's toy and then drops the first to go obtain the latter. It is immature spiritually It is obviously unfaithful, and it is childish. That's what Paul calls it in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, contextually, Paul is talking about how each office of the church, for the exception of deacons, which is absent from the text, is given for the sanctification of believers, for the perfecting of the saints, it says. Verse 14 of that chapter Paul tells us the effect of this. He says, so that we are no longer to be children. Well, what are children like, Paul? He says, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. See, maturity in Christ not only means knowledge of true biblical doctrine, but also a rabid reliance and faithfulness to it and a sensitivity to any distortion of it. We must not only know the truth, but love the truth and defend the truth. But we must also notice in our text not only the speed of their abandonment, but also the subject of their abandonment. See, when you speak of deserting anything, there will always be two parts. An emigration from something and an immigration to something. That which you leave and that which you come to. But see how the Galatians desert God but leave to a different gospel, verse 6. It doesn't say that they abandoned Yahweh for a different God. Or one being for another being or that they have deserted the true gospel for a false gospel, one message for another message. Rather, they they abandoned God for a different gospel, and surely there's no other way to do so. To desert God is to desert the gospel, for God is the gospel. Paul here makes them synonyms. If you have a true God and a false gospel, then you have neither. If you have a true gospel but a false God, then you have neither. And we can get very, very close. 
or appear very close without having the true God or the true gospel, right? How close were the Pharisees? That's what verse 7 says. It's really not another gospel. There is no other gospel. There is no second gospel, no third gospel. And there are a lot of movements, a lot of religions saying that they have the true gospel that really don't. See this in Mormonism, in Islam. Prosperity gospel, the emerging church movement. Think of the Israelites and the golden calf. Sort of the prototypical version of what idolatry looks like to us. And let me remind you of a detail that's often missed in that very famous narrative. What did the Israelites name the golden calf? Did you know that they named him? Exodus chapter 32, verse 4. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron looked and built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, and he names the golden calf, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Same name, different God. Same name, different God. They ascribe the name of Yahweh to the golden calf. They also ascribe the works of Yahweh to the golden calf. These are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't be fooled. Just because somebody uses the name God or the title God or the name Yahweh or the name Jesus doesn't mean that they are our brother or our sister. Not automatically. And we must examine ourselves as well. Going to church no more makes you a Christian than being in the water makes you a fish. We have to examine ourselves to see if we are truly saved. Do you actually love God? Do you love the right God? How would you know that? Do your works show that? Does your heart show that? Do your affections show that? No, these things don't save us, but they are the necessary fruit displaying to us if we are saved. As Ravenhill used to put it, you never have to advertise a fire. Tell me, do you have to convince people that you're saved? Do we have to advertise for them to know? Is it that much of a hidden thing? Nobody complains about having to memorize every line of their favorite show or their sports team members. It's something that we just do by nature with that which we love. I don't know what your favorite show is. Maybe it's Friends. Maybe it's... I don't know, Supernatural. I personally like the show Psych, if anybody remembers that. And we memorized lots of things from our favorite shows, right? Maybe you know every title of every Friends episode. The one where blah, 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 right? Or memorized every Gus Don't Be from Psych. I tried to do that at one point. Don't judge me. 
Nobody complains about having to memorize every line of their favorite show. But for a lot of us, the sun would sooner turn purple before we put that kind of memorization work to the scriptures. Some of us will seek out sports strategies and complex political ideologies just for fun, just of our own accord. But theology bores us. Our hearts remain cold to the things of God, to the one who died for us. We'll stay up for hours talking to friends about really nothing of real worth. But the friend of sinners receives but a 15-minute devotion in the morning, never to be spoken to again throughout the day. Some people think that we should go back to being like the early church. There's really no need to go back to where you already reside. Have we not so quickly deserted him as well? For our games, for our looks, for our sports, our politics, our girlfriend, our boyfriend, ourselves. I've heard it said the most natural act of the human soul is to replace God. So how might we heed this warning? How can we not desert Him as they did? I remind you again of Ephesians chapter 4. We can't be children. We can't be thrown into spiritual confusion every time a new doctrine is invented. 2 Peter 3.17 and 18. The last two verses of 2 Peter. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Why? Lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, false doctrine, fall away from your own steadfastness. What's the, what's the cure? How are we to be on guard? He continues, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in your knowledge of God. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. Some of us have been Christians for 10 years, 15 years. Some of us pushing 25, 30 years. For John, it's like 87 years in the church. <laughs> and this command is often left to the wayside. We excuse it. I'm not smart enough. I didn't go to seminary. I'm not a pastor. And we sort of punt that as far as we can to feel okay about plateauing, staying where we've been in our spiritual maturity, and frankly disobeying 2 Peter 3.18. Let me read to you a quotation. And fair warning, this is somebody articulating Calvinistic theology. This is not an endorsement of Calvinism, nor is it an attack on Calvinism. I'm not commenting on Calvinistic soteriology. Don't get lost in the theological sauce. The point, the point 
is only to show you one person growing in their understanding of the knowledge of God, okay? So you are free to disagree. I'm not saying I agree with all of what I'm about to read. He writes these two sentiments after listening to a few sermons of a series done at his church. He writes this, quote, The preacher at church yesterday was talking about predestination. He said that God chose people before he made the world. He chose people to save and people not to save. Really, God can do that because he's the maker of everyone. Jesus died so that the people God chose could be saved forever. I think that it's wonderful to be chosen. I'm glad he chose me. He writes of another sermon. The preacher yesterday was talking about a part of predestination called reprobation. Look it up. The people who God does not choose to save get this. He can do this bad punishment because he's holy and just. These people have sinned against God and he is just to punish them. He gets glory by showing his justice. The people God chooses to save are sinners too and God gets glory by showing his mercy and grace. Now you do not have to agree with everything that I just read. What I want you to see is does it sound like he knows what he believes? Does it sound like he can explain it? Like he can defend it? Like he can support it? I don't know all the details of this, but I do know this. That was written by a kid who is mentally disabled, can't speak, has never spoken. So what's our excuse? Philippians 2.13 For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen, it might seem like humility, but if we're being honest, it is prideful to think that we're the only one who can't know God at the deepest, most intimate levels, just like the heroes of our faith. It is God who is at work in you. Don't limit Him. And frankly, it's an insult to God to say that the knowledgeable brilliance of godly men and godly women comes only from intellectual disposition. It is God who has worked in them. You know the greatest pastor outside the Bible? Widely agreed to be the greatest pastor outside the Bible. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon. He did not go to seminary. He didn't have a degree. Am I saying he was uneducated? No, he was absolutely educated. He was probably better educated than just about anybody else. He was just unschooled. How was he so wise? How how did he know God so intimately? Not because of a degree, not because he took so many classes, though those things can take you there if you steward them right. It was because it was God who was at work in him. And the same God is at work in you. Not for a mere intellectual assent. This isn't about how many big words you know. 
frankly, Charles Spurgeon was really well known for being very, very easy to understand. But true knowledge of God, the biblical definition of knowing God, knowing Him intimately, closely, relationally. Listen, theology, the, the true gospel, the articulated gospel, is not an end in itself. I see this confusion often. It is not an end in itself. If your theology ends with just information acquisition, it is impotent and frankly castrated. It is not as it should be. Rather, true biblical doctrine is the firm foundation from which all the Christian life can and does happen. It is not the roof, but the bottom floor. That which allows us to worship Him correctly. we got to know something about Him to do that. That which allows us to practice properly, to counsel properly, even to have emotions. They have to be based on something, right? Am I saying you have to go to seminary? No, but I'd encourage it. It'd be good for you, probably, if you steward it right. Am I saying you have to be the wisest person of our generation? No, though you should want to be. And with God at work in you, I have no doubt that you absolutely can. Am I saying you need to read at least one systematic theology a year? No, but if you steward it right, it probably help you a lot, probably grow you a lot. Rather, you should, day by day, be feeding on the gospel, constantly learning more, applying more, worshiping more, meditating more, so that after one year, 10 years, 20 years, that you get to be an 80-year-old Christian, and you can look back and say, God, I have not resisted you, nor have I replaced you, but you have grown me through your word, through your children. I tell you that husbands should be experts on their wives. Nobody's angry, nobody's upset, it's not very controversial. Then why should this be left unsaid? You are the bride of Christ. Be an expert on your Christ. Be an expert on your Christ. Lest you desert your first love as the Galatians did, and commit the adultery of idolatry. Let's continue. That's just verse 6. <laughs> we got another three hours, I think. Verse 7, Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, referencing back to verse 2, meaning Paul and all the brothers with him, even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. We've seen the deserters, and now we see the damned. We've looked at the audience and now we turn our eyes to the adversaries. 
This again is not a complex argument. Paul is just talking about the the highest levels of authority to show that even if somebody with this much authority came and brought another gospel, not only are they wrong, but they are damned. So how much more so the people disturbing the Galatian churches, who I would argue have less authority than even the people with Paul, let alone Paul himself. Paul says, even if everybody with me, even if I as an apostle through Christ and not through men, even if an angel from heaven hand delivers another gospel, then damn their soul to eternal judgment. These are the stakes. He principally gives three levels of authorities, each of which we see bringing false gospels even today. Men bring contrary gospels. Often the gospel of self-help, self-empowerment, self-esteem, self-love. I am worthy. Angels are accused of bringing contrary gospels. That's what Islam claims. I think some forms of Mormonism claim this as well. We even have modern day apostles bringing contrary gospels. As Jeff mentioned last week, Bill Johnson of Bethel Church. Bethel Church is a spearhead of the largest movement going by the name Christian that you've probably never heard of. It's called the New Apostolic Reformation. New Apostolic Reformation, NAR for short, which teaches, sadly, among many other things, that we are little gods and can create reality, that Jesus did not exercise his divinity when he was on earth, and that New Age mysticism was stolen from the church and must be reclaimed. It is so aberrant and has gone so far that one of their other apostles, a man named Brian Simmons, is currently in the process of authoring a new Bible translation in order to confirm the movement's distorted theology. This is the Passion Translation, which of the corresponding 31 books translated therein has added 64,993 words to Scripture. For context, that is more than every canonical epistle, every book from Romans through Jude, combined and tacked on to the end of the scriptures. This is a Bible translation, which the so-called translator says is, quote, an excellent translation you can use as your primary text to study God's word. Apostles, angels, men, they all still bring to us contrary gospels. Paul stops short of speaking only of one authority, and it is God himself. It is the gospel himself. He exhausts all but one authority figure. As if to say that there is no existing or even conceivable being which could bring to you another gospel and it still be saving, it still be good, it still be right, except for God himself who is that very gospel and can himself never change. 
For the gospel to change, God would have to stop being God. Continue deeper with me. Look at the verses again. Notice Paul's three appraisals of this new gospel. We're going to step back. Look at verse 6. It begins as different. In verse 7, it is distorted. And finally, in verses 8 and 9, it is contrary. Paired with these three condemnations are three effects on its listeners and its propagators. Desertion, disturbedness, or trouble, and damnation. So what is the relationship between these? Verse 6, a different gospel requires desertion. A different gospel cannot coexist with the true gospel. It requires one to desert his first love. You cannot be a slave of two masters. A man might appear to love God, but if his gospel is different from what Paul has delivered, then we must say he has deserted Christ. Verse 7, a distorted gospel disturbs. The word disturb means to shake back and forth or disquiet, to induce anxiety. MacArthur relates this to the emotional turbulence the Galatians experienced due to the distortions that the false teachers had brought upon the gospel. There is an emotional response to this. And finally, in verses 8 and 9, a contrary gospel damns. And this ought to be the most terrifying piece of this text. This is the culmination of Paul's condemnations. A contrary gospel has a contrary effect to the true gospel. The true gospel saves. A contrary gospel damns. Although a contrary gospel condemns all of its believers, to be sure, Paul is speaking specifically here about false teachers with an eye to the wolf that's been troubling the Galatian churches. He's saying preachers who bring a different gospel are damned. And the translation of that is, the guy who's been troubling you, as he refers to him in chapter 5, this one who brings this different gospel, who claims to have a newer, truer, better, whatever gospel, the harsh truth is that man isn't even a baby Christian let alone a skilled Bible teacher. And worse, his soul is accursed. Anathema, damned. James 3.1 tells us that Bible teachers will endure a stricter judgment. And so what then will become of those who don't merely fail, but who are false prophets? Jude 13 says that for them the black darkness has been reserved forever. 1 Corinthians 3.16-17 also speaks to this. Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He's, he doesn't mean your body is a temple. That's a different text. That's, that's 1 Corinthians 6. Contextually, Paul's talking about the local church. You, the church, are the sanctuary of God, the dwelling place of His Spirit. He continues in verse 17, If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, 
God will destroy him. For the sanctuary of God is holy and that is what you are. There is no escape for false teachers except to repent. And while they do not deserve our prayer, we must give it. It's remarkable the lack of discernment we have in the church. Myriads upon myriads of false teachers. Copeland, Hinn, Johnson, Burdick. Ideologies being brought in as our lens to view Scripture through, like critical race theory, and discernment that allows for the true gospel to be defamed as cosmic child abuse, as the progressives often like to say. Grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Go to your studies that you might know Him and burn for Him. That you would love Him. Who cares about your personality type? Know your God. Know your God. As a songwriter plays, prays, I don't want to look in a stranger's eyes when I come into this place. Let me grow familiar with the lines, the lines on your face. This is the privilege of the Christian, not merely the duty. Know the God who is the gospel. Every crease, every crevice, every nuance, every question that can be answered, every question that can't, Why must he be man? Why must he be God? Why a cross and not some other sort of death? Be an expert on the gospel. Nothing in your life matters if it does not flow from and to your love of Yahweh. Nothing in your life matters. So love him with all your soul all your mind, with all your heart, all your strength. Would you be a good slave? I know you can be, but will you? Verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Our third and final point. The author, Paul, is God's doulas, his slave. Doulos Christos, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, a forever slave, a slave. Our culture really doesn't like that word. You can't take away my independence. I'm an American, right? And if you don't want to be a slave, that's okay. It's okay. You can be like the rest. To seek the favor of men. To strive to please them. 
And if that is you, then you've succeeded. You are not a slave of Christ. But if not a slave, then not a child. Paul says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. One of the two must win, the desire to please men or the desire to please God. Who will you be a slave to? Which master would you rather have? They are diametrically opposed, mutually exclusive. A slave is, in a lot of ways, the antithesis of a deserter. Known for their absolute faithfulness to the desires of one person, their master. If you don't like the slave language, then let me put it like this. You are the bride of Christ, and you will either train yourself for monogamy with your God, or you will be trained by the world for variety. Constantly wanting a new God. Let's try drugs or maybe alcohol. What about work? That'll make me a lot of money. How about exercise? Maybe my girlfriend or boyfriend. Can you be a good slave? Will you be a good slave? To not desert him, not distort him. Don't you want to hear those tremendous words? Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, hate is a Jewish hyperbole. It means to love one person or one thing so much more that by comparison your love for everything else looks like hatred. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Jesus, don't say it, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Be a faithful slave. Let's pray. My God, would this be a room filled with faithful slaves? Make us submissive. Make us obedient. Let us love you, Lord, without measure holding back, not unfounded, not mere emotion, but founded emotion, Lord, upon your revelation, that we might love you in the truest sense, in the most pleasing sense, that we might worship you for who you truly are, some version that we've deserted you for some other God, 
Not some distortion, Lord. See Christ. Take us deeper. Teach us to love you, Lord. Pray these things in your name. Amen.